0: Well, the past couple of Sundays have been a little bit out of the ordinary in terms of sermon texts because last week we had some visiting missionaries and Cindy Montzingo, uh, a missionary to Thailand, shared the word out of the book of Jonah. And then the week before that, we were at the Mount Baker Theater with several other churches and we got a wonderful word from Dr. Ray Bakke. And so it's been about three weeks since we've been together in our First Corinthians series. All right, and what we're going to do this evening is we're going to jump right into the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because we covered the first part of it three weeks ago. Now, if you're like me, you had to brush up a little bit and get a recap. So what we're going to do is just read the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses. And uh, I'll encourage you to stand if you're able. That'll help, help you stay awake a little bit too. And uh, we'll read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. Paul writes, It's actually reported that there's immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present." In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us, not, or let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother or sister if they are an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? But do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked person from among yourselves." Lord, help us. Um, What a challenging word, uh, both in its cultural obscurity and uh, what a challenging word uh, for us today. Um, Lord, help us to be tempered by humility and courage. And most of all, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open this message to us, that you would speak to us um, the word that you have for us, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, we covered the first five verses of that passage. Paul writes to this church in Corinth about a man in the congregation who was openly having an incestuous affair with his stepmother. For all we know about ancient Corinths infamously lack sexual morals, Paul makes a specific point in this letter to say that this form of immorality, this incest, is even outside the bounds of pagan uh, sexual morals, okay? So it's, it's like crazy that this is happening in the church when it's not even acceptable to uh, non-Christian pagans in Corinth. Paul clearly disagrees with this man's sinful actions, but his main point in this whole chapter is not this man's sin. His main point in this chapter is the Corinthian church's attitude toward the sin, he just can't believe that they're just like, that's cool. There's a guy who's a member of our congregation who's like sleeping with his stepmom to the shame of his father. They're boasting but betrays a sense of pride that, frankly, we see cropping up in all kinds of organizations, uh, even in our own land, where ordinary people think that they are extraordinary in the sense that they're outside the bounds of law. So even if you're not a soccer fan, it would be hard for you to have read the paper or seen the news in the last week and not heard of FIFA, right? Uh, you, there's these indictments against FIFA officials. FIFA is the largest governing body in all of world sports. It oversees international soccer and organizes the Men's World Cup and the Women's World Cup, which started yesterday. USA women going tomorrow. All right, that their first game you should watch, cheer our ladies on. Okay. With billions and billions of dollars at their disposal and power and infl- to influence entire nations, FIFA executives have been accused of perpetuating a culture of bribery and corruption and coercion. The man at the top, Sepp Blatter, not Seth Blatter, um, <laughs> This guy seems to sincerely believe that he's doing the world a favor. He believes with all his heart that he is an advocate for the poor nations and an ambassador for soccer around the world. But his ends justifies the means approach reeks of arrogance, as if the law doesn't apply to him because his intentions are just really good. Sounds a little bit like Darth Vader to me. Anyone else? Come on, everything sounds okay. In a similar way, the Corinthian church was so full of themselves, so sure that they were spiritually mature, they believed they were above the outdated ethics of our fathers and those Old Testament scriptures, and they were ap- it was worse than just being apathetic to sin in their midst. They were proud of it. So in verses 1 through 5, Paul is confronting them on their attitude towards sin, Their boasting, he says, should be mourning. They are proud. He says they should be repentant because our attitudes lead to our actions. And it's to the actions now that Paul's going to turn in the letter, starting in verse six. And that's what we're going to focus on right now. He writes, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So in ancient rhetoric, The line, do you not know, was a common way of introducing obvious ideas to people who, they definitely, yes, they already knew. So in Winston's, he's saying, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, is like you and I saying, one bad apple spoils the whole barrel. It was kind of a, a saying, okay? It was a simple metaphor. The idea is that in any community, the actions of a few affect the whole. The principle here is that Your sin, it might be personal, but it's never private. Does that make sense? Your sin might be personal, but it's never private. Each one of us, our sin has a way of releasing toxins into the community, whether it's our city or our country or certainly in the church community. In fact, maybe you've lived with an addict in the house or maybe you've been an addict in your family or in your home and you know that the isolated actions of one person have very public, or communal consequences. So what is the action that Paul is calling the church to take? Well, his call to action is to remove this unrepentant sinner from the community for two reasons. One is for the sake of the community, for the health of the community. The other is for the health and the sake of the sinner. Now, there's something very important I don't want to just gloss over. Remove the unrepentant sinner. That's a vital distinction. Because if we removed every sinner from church, I'd be the first one out the door, and you would all have to follow me, right? Okay? He's not saying just remove every sinner from church. There would be no church. What makes us the church is not never sinning. What makes us the church is Jesus. He's the one who died for us. You didn't die for me. I didn't die for you. He's the one who gives us new life. He's the one who washes us clean when we confess and repent of our sin. We are alive and part of the church only because we're in Christ. And we're in Christ not because of your good moral character, not because of your ethnicity. We are not in Christ because of our gender. We're not in Christ because of our sexual identity. We are in Christ because of what Jesus has done. And we are in Christ because we've received what he's done through faith and repentance and receive forgiveness. In fact, the only thing that can keep you or anyone else out of fellowship with the body of Christ is unrepentant sin. Like wearing it like a badge of honor, like, yeah, I know I do X, Y, and Z. Live with it. Well, Paul says, no, we can't live with it. We can't just live with it. And and here's where the text gets really uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me, right? We live in a time and culture that so values the freedom of everyone to do whatever they feel like, whenever they feel like it, that is difficult to critique. And it makes us squirm right in our seats. uh, If you weren't stuck to them because you're sweating so bad right now, you might be squirming. And the the idea to hold each other accountable to a higher standard, uh, that's not Bellingham. And on the one hand, we are on solid ground for not being quick to judge. Uh, In fact, Jeff just read us the passage from Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, Do not judge, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother or sister's eye and you don't even notice the log, the lumber in your own eye? How can you say, Nancy, let me take the little speck of sawdust out of your eye. Well, I've got a two-by-four sticking out of my face. Can't even get close to you, can I? Jesus says, in no uncertain terms are we to be judgmental of others. Our vision is so obscured by our own sin, You know, it would be literally like trying to take a speck of sawdust when we've got lumber sticking out of our face, right? So Jesus is clear that as individuals, we should not judge other individuals we have no basis for being judge and jury over our brothers and sisters and in fact having a judgmental attitude and you might want to just check your own heart on this having a judgmental attitude reveals that maybe maybe you don't you haven't fully received grace yourself or come to grips with just how much you need grace that being said Jesus' call not to judge people uh, is not saying four different things. Here's what Jesus is not saying. First, it does not mean that we shouldn't have courts and we shouldn't have judges. You know, throughout Scripture, Jesus calls on people to act as judges. Moses used to hear people's cases, and then he got advice to to divvy that up to 70 other elders to help him hear these cases. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about the role of government and executive and judicial policy. So, this isn't saying do away with judges and courts. Second, Jesus isn't saying, don't think. The rest of Scripture confirms that God calls us to be discerning and to make judgments between good and evil and right and wrong and justice and injustice. In fact, in just a few verses in the Sermon on the Mount, right after uh, Matthew 7 here, Jesus is going to say, look out for false prophets, and he says you can judge a false prophet by looking at the fruit of their lives. Okay? So we are supposed to, you know, make judgments about people's lives and about ideas, okay? Third, this does not mean that anything goes in church. Jesus says, don't judge, so we can do whatever we want. Um, One of the big words in Western culture uh, is tolerance, right? And this can mean a lot of great things. Uh, I just think it's a little wanting. Uh, I think tolerance is, uh, is a cheap cheap way of loving someone, because love is more costly than tolerance. Tolerance says, I don't really care about you. As long as what you're doing doesn't bug me, do whatever you want. Love says, no, actually what you're doing might kill you. It might destroy your family. It might destroy our community. It might destroy our relationship. So I'm going to love you enough to reveal that to you. Love is more powerful than tolerance. And the fourth thing, that not judging each other does not mean it doesn't mean that we never confront, right? In fact, Matthew 18, 15, again, Je- Jeff read that earlier, uh, says that if your brother or sister, if you see them in sin, you're to go to them privately. You're not to gossip about it. You're not to say, oh, I wonder what I should say to this person in a way of like gossiping about it. You're to go to them. And, and if they don't listen to you, you're to, you're to go with some elders and to, with the community, the church is to go with you and to confront them gently in their sin so you feel the tension. Matthew 7 warns us against being judgmental as individuals toward individuals. Matthew 18, on the other hand, commands us to confront. You ever think about that? It's not like, hey, it's a good idea to confront one another. It's a command that Jesus gives us I know, probably not talking about you, but I've heard over and over again, people say, well, I don't like Paul, I like Jesus. That's why I made sure to have two quotes from Jesus here. Jesus says, don't judge and confront people in their sin. Same Jesus, not schizophrenic, same book of the Bible. So why would Jesus command this of us? Um, Just so you stay awake, why don't you turn to a neighbor? Why would Jesus command us to confront one another? Command us. Any ideas? I'd love to hear, shout out a few. What are some ideas? Why would Jesus command us to confront? Loving. Help us to grow. Nice. One more. Course correction. I love it. I love it. Yeah, those are all good. I I wish I would have asked you before I wrote this sermon, but... um, Yeah, no, seriously, I believe Jesus commands us to confront because he's commanding us to care, and I think Colin said love. That's a more powerful word. He's commanding us to love. He's commanding us always to work for shalom, for the greater good of the community. Not just our community, but the community that we're planted in, right? He always wants his church to be working toward reconciliation, By this definition, Jesus's command to confront is done for the good of the sinner and for the good of the community. First, confronting a brother or sister on their sin is an act of loving kindness. If sin leads to death, which is an assumption I make from the scripture, if sin leads to death, then bringing that up with somebody could lead to life, right? I mean, you can't make anybody repent. That's the job of the Holy Spirit in a person's will in however mysterious way those things combine but if you don't say anything are you not then complicit if you see one of your brothers or sisters going down a path of self-destruction and pain the loving thing to do is to reach out and to show them what you're seeing second confronting a brother or sister in their sin is good for the whole community as we saw earlier there's no such thing as just a private little sin that doesn't affect anyone else There's sins done in private, but the consequences work out in community. I mean, you may not think so. Uh, I hate to go down too many rabbit trails, but I mean, just think about this. Like, what's one of the most private sins we have? Um, You could have uh, a selfish, judgmental attitude, or, um, you know, uh, guys, pornography is a big one, right? So uh, the statistics say that most of us here are struggling with that on an intermittent basis, right? So, like let's say it's a porn thing and you have a relationship maybe you're dating someone or you're married to someone or, or you're going to date someone okay guys so y- you have this broken you have this sense of shame about you and you walk around as a wounded person n- doubting that god really loves you doubting that you're really forgiven because you've done it for the 7000th time and you'll quit tomorrow it causes a rift in your relationship and that plays out in how you act at work. And that plays out about how you interact with your friends and your, and your kids and your parents. And, and every single relationship, in some way, is not as whole as it could be. And ladies, let's just give you one, uh, a judgmental attitude. I don't know what it. Uh, ladies are always so much better than us guys. Your sins are cooler. Um, <clears throat> But, you know, here's, here's one thing from my perspective that I see in, in some people in my life is I'll call it the uh, the Pinterest disease. Uh, the Pinterest disease, um, I, I saw a family member do this. She was um, very pregnant and agonizing over this baby shower that she wanted to put on, and ha- it had to be the perfect thing. I mean, she was ki- she had to go to bed rest, actually, because she overworked herself to have this event that would impress her friends feeling so much pressure to measure up to these other women in cyberspace. Like, and I, I think as I interact, some of you sometimes feel this pressure, this, this secret measuring up, and, and you, you wear that about yourself, and you put this, this sense of inadequacy on yourself, and it affects other relationships. See, this covetousness, this, this attitude. So there's no just private sins that don't affect community. Now, here's an important distinction to make that Jesus is telling us. He's telling us to call out Christian brothers and sisters in their sin. He's not telling us to go around and point out everybody's sin, right? He's not telling us to go out and just find random people on the street and hold a sign up and say, you're going to hell. He's not telling us to do that. And that's huge. This command is aimed at followers of Jesus in reference to followers of Jesus. This is a huge thing for me because I see daily posts on Facebook or the blogosphere where well-meaning people say things like, you know what? Jesus included everyone. Or Jesus would never condemn anyone. And it's true. Jesus ate with tax collectors and notorious sinners and prostitutes. He had table fellowship with folks like that. But in none of those accounts in scripture is Jesus interacting with sinful people, overtly sinful people, and saying, you know what? I'm really proud of your lifestyle. Or just stay as you are. We sing that song, come come as you are, or come now is the time to worship. That's a great starting point. But I wish there was a song for the close that says, don't leave as you were. Right? Because Jesus has this, you notice these encounters. The woman at the well, you know, she's gone through like, five husbands the guy she's with now isn't isn't her she's not even married with them and there's this encounter with jesus he doesn't even have to blast her he just reveals truth and is so loving so genuine that it changes her encounter with him changes her life she goes back wait, till you meet a man I've never met a man like this before. She brings her whole community, and she is an evangelist because she's been overcome by the kindness of God, not by Jesus with the sign telling her she's going to hell. Right? So yes, Jesus is open to everyone, but he calls everyone to change. Why? Because he cares enough to confront and to help us be free from our sin. It's important, I think, to recognize. I know we're in 1 uh, uh, Corinthians, and that's a letter of Paul, but again, there is this bias out there about people liking Jesus and not Paul. So let's go back to Jesus and see how Jesus interacts with two different groups of people. The first group of people is how Jesus interacts with those outside the religious community. In Mark nine forty, Jesus' disciples They are cruising around with Jesus, and they see some other guy, not part of their group, not a disciple, and he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they get all uptight about it. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent them because they're not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. And here's the punchline. For he who is not against us is for us. That's Jesus' stance toward those outside his community of faith. Those who are not yet disciples of Jesus. If you're not against us, you're for us. Now, notice his stance toward insiders, toward those who are part of the religious community community. In Luke eleven twenty three, 23, the Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of getting his power and authority from Satan. These are the people who had the scriptures, who had the prophets. They were the ones God charged with being a blessing to the world. They were the ones who made up the holy community, and about them, Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. You, you catch the difference? For outsiders, if, hey, if you're not against me, you're for me. For insiders, if you're not for me, you're against me. Because you better, you should know better. You have the scriptures. You have the revelation of God. Now, let's bring this into the Corinthian situation. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, calling on them to confront this man who is openly committing sin in their midst. He calls them to cast him out of their fellowship because his actions are destroying the community, and they're destroying this man's soul. How could they not be? Casting this man out of fellowship is not the decision of one person, right? And and, this is not the pastor's job to say, hmm, Wayne, you, you, you know, sorry, buddy, you should be out. Uh, it's not the, the job of the chair of the elders, so you should not have Tim coming to you, coming to you solo saying, like, Scoon, sorry, bud, you're out, right? Uh, this is the role of the community. None of us has enough perspective in ourselves to, to cast judgment. And, and by making it a community affair that's prayerfully discerned, it, it avoids the, the sense of vendetta. Like, there's no personal vendetta here. It keeps judgment from being judgmental. And if you're wondering, well, I wonder how this would play out at Leonard Streets. In our own church polity, someone can only be removed from partnership if they remove themselves or in a majority vote once a a case is made against someone and evidence of reconciliation has been exhausted like you got to really want to not be part of the fellowship of this church and frankly you know in corinth like paul planted that church 18 months before this letter there's no other churches like this is the place you go to have communion to hear the word of the apostles in bellingham you know what mostly happens is we have a disagreement you're like you know what i'm gonna go to some other church that believes like i do and to me, that's a sad thing. Uh, but I, I am encouraged that more and more of us pastors and leadership, and this thing on that baker theater is kind of a visual, visual expression, more of us are living in, in community, walking in community, um, regularly praying together. So it's becoming more and more difficult to just like, hop around um, to, you know, to your new best flavor. Uh, anyhow. Matthew 18 When Jesus calls us to confront, he says if our brother or sister, after being confronted privately and then lovingly by community, if they still refuse to repent, you're to cast them out of the fellowship and then what are you supposed to do? Treat them as a a Gentile or a pagan, as a non-Christian. And how are we supposed to treat non-Christians? With love and compassion and wooing them back into the community. Isn't that... We don't write people off in the church. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm saying that the scriptures say we don't write people off in the church. Amen? We need to be better than that. All of this is done for health and reconciliation. Right? We treat non-believers like people Jesus died for. He did. Like people Jesus loves. He does like people in need need of a Savior, they are. We don't take the Lord's Supper together with someone who's clearly openly unrepentant because the Lord's Supper is for repentant sinners. Like, that's what it's about. But we go out of our way to seek the good of others and work towards repentance and reconciliation. Now, I know I just said best-case scenario stuff, and frankly, it makes us still feel uncomfortable. These boundaries in the church make us feel uncomfortable. I was thinking about this, though. It's funny that boundaries in the church, at least, maybe you're not uncomfortable at all. You're like, finally, somebody's preaching the word here. But it does, you know, it gives me pause. And I was thinking how funny it is that we kind of have funny talk, uh, uh, trouble talking about boundaries in church, but we don't have trouble talking about boundaries in so many other areas of life, and I was thinking about even high school sports, right, like I was a high school wrestler, and to be a high school wrestler, you know, you had to try out and all that stuff, and then you had to sign this contract, and it said things like, you'll maintain a certain GPA, and you won't use certain substances, you know, And, uh, and you'll be at every practice unless you're like sick or something, you know, it's just like basic high school sports stuff. So, If there's expectations for a 16-year-old to participate in a sport, which is a privilege to do, how much more, right, Uh, as people who have been transformed by the living God, by the grace of Jesus, how much more uh, some standard of ethic that we walk together and hold each other accountable? Does that that make some sense to me? Paul says, have nothing to do with judging those outside the church. Why would we? What possible standard would we hold someone to who don't even believe in the scripture? That's ridiculous to me. Uh, They've never committed to following Jesus. Why would we expect them to live the way Jesus says? Hey, you know, you don't follow the Sermon on the Mount. I've never heard of it. (laughs) I don't believe it, right? We don't hold outsiders to the same standard. Uh, They've never experienced His love and forgiveness. They haven't been baptized, which means they haven't died to their old life and been raised to walk in newness of Christ's life. They don't seek fellowship at the Lord's table. So we don't judge outsiders. We don't shun them. In fact, you'd have to live in some kind of crazy cultish commune if you really wanted to get away from people who didn't think like you did. And you know what would happen if we did that, right? We would be living in direct contradiction to what we're called to be. The church, you, me, we're the called out ones. We're the new people of God. In verse 6, Paul talks about the leaven spoiling the whole lump of dough. And at face value, I talked about that being a metaphor like one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. But of course, there's more than face value going on with leaven and dough. yes it means remove evil from your midst it means a regular mode of repentance when we've sinned it means calling one another to a higher standard than open sexual immorality open greed conspicuous consumption corruption and idolatry in all its forms it calls us out on those things why because the feast of unleavened bread it was a festival of remembrance It was to remember when God, by his grace, rescued the Israelites from Egypt, when they weren't asking for it, when they had no, uh, nothing to earn his grace, he just did it. And that night, he says, I want you to be ready to escape. You don't have time for your leavened dough. Have unleavened bread ready to go. Slaughter a lamb for each household. Put the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost. And when the angel of death comes over in the final plague against the Egyptians, he will spare you and you be ready to run. No time for your fancy sourdough bread. No time for your lumpy yeasty bread, all right? It's time to get ready to be mobile. And ever since then, um, the the Jewish people have been keeping the tradition of Passover and then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, right? And Paul, a Jew himself and then a convert uh, to Jesus, saw that jesus is the ultimate passover lamb and that now you and i the church are living in a perpetual state of feast the lamb has been sacrificed the sins have been forgiven and now we are in like feast of unleavened bread for a long long time until jesus returns And that doesn't mean you can't have good food like i'm not talking about literal feast of unleavened bread i love me some leaven amen good little sourdough grilled cheese oh Come on. But what I'm saying is, that that metaphor of leaven representing something evil in our midst, of purging that, that should be our daily rhythm. Lord, I noticed some leaven today in my attitude, in my actions, in my snapping at my kids like I did before church today, because I was anxious. They were thwarting my will. This is the the bits of leaven that rise up in us, right? And, And we We purge ourselves because we're in the feast season, we're in the celebration season all the time in Christ. We're always aware of our need for grace. We accept we need forgiveness, but we don't accept sin as the new natural. Not anymore. And we live without leaven so we can be a light to the nation, salt of the earth. We are called out so that we could be in the world and actually make a difference, right? So many of you know I was in the Coast Guard for seven years for three of those years, I was on this team called the Pacific Strike team, and we were trained to to respond to chemical and oil spills and to be an asset if there was ever a release of uh, like uh, chemical or biological weapons. Well, in two thousand and two um, the Olympics right we were in Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, there was a, a little bit of intelligence, not much because it 's military intelligence, but there 's a little intelligence that there might be um, a counter-terrorist attack, and there might be, like, a good target would be the Olympics. We have got all these people from around the world there on American soil. A great opportunity to release a chemical or biological weapon. So the strike team, who has all this great, like, level A capability, fully encapsulating suits, it doesn't do you a lot of good if you're in the blast zone because you can't get it on fast enough to escape, right? You'd just be dead. So what they did is they took the strike team and staged them outside the theoretical blast zone so that in the event of a situation, they could be ready to go in and enter the chaos. They were set apart to enter in. Does that make sense? They were set apart to enter in. If we, the church, look just like the world, if our lives are no different, then what kind of life do we really have to offer those in Christ? How are we to be His hands and feet? How can we have anything to offer if we're not ourselves touched by the gospel in a way that actually matters? Because, see, you and I we're, were set apart so that we can enter in. We're not set apart to go live in a cloister together. We're set apart, we do this, we come here, we are washed clean on a regular basis, we receive the grace of God so that then we can enter in and reflect beauty and grace and goodness to our neighbors. In the end, I think this hard word for the Corinthians is a really good word for us. It reminds us that Jesus did not call us to play church. He didn't call us to be a a social club and he didn't call us to be a center for philanthropy, even though I do love hanging out with you on a social level and we do a lot of philanthropic good things. But that's not the reason we're together. Jesus gives us new life. He calls us to reflect His kingdom in our families, and in our friendships, in our worship, and in our service outside the walls of this building. He calls us to reflect His kingdom in our personal life and in our public life. And my hope and my prayer for me and for you is that this word would remind us of who we are, as Paul does in the beginning of his letter. I want to pray these words for us. This is from the opening of 1 Corinthians with a little modifications. Lord, we receive these words as words to us. To the church of God in the lettered streets, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, and with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, waiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.